0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Mind Your Body. I'm so excited to bring our guest today, Renee Ortega. She is a good friend and a former coworker of mine. We used to work at The League together in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, it's a therapeutic preschool. We were the only two dance therapists there for a while. So as you can imagine, we had a lot to connect on. But today she brings so much value, um, so much importance to this conversation about intercultural communication and awareness and that's actually different than being culturally competent or multiculturally competent and I can't wait to share with you all the ways that she she enlightened me for sure as someone who's really new to expanding my view and my perspective in all of this and I can imagine she will do the same for you so here it goes. Let's, let's dig in. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. Hey, Renee. Welcome to the really? podcast. And we've been trying to do this for a year or so, so I'm really excited. And I'd love for you to introduce yourself. And let us know a little bit about you in relationship to what you're talking about today.
1: Okay, great. Hi, Marie. Um, so my name is Renee Ortega. I'm a board-certified dance movement therapist. Um, I'm also an occupational therapy practitioner um, in the state of New York and a licensed creative arts therapist. Um So today I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about intercultural communication and intercultural competency. Um, I'm currently pursuing a PhD in international psychology with a trauma concentration. Um, And all that really means is I really um, am learning and becoming more educated about um, the diversity of the world, the diversity of people and looking at culture beyond uh, the stereotype and beyond kind of what you see on TV or read in a magazine. Um, So I've really become really fascinated and intrigued about intercultural communication. And basically, um, I think for a long time, I thought it was the same thing as uh, cultural competency or cross-cultural competency, but I see that it's it's really deeper than that and more complicated than that. And it's really um, how people interact and engage within a community and with the culture. And that's really how I'm looking at it. A lot of intercultural uh, work is done, uh, or rather a lot of intercultural research is done with study abroad students or scenarios where people migrate to another country and really have to learn about the culture. Um And adapt to the culture. And I'm really looking at intercultural communication within the same culture. Um, So I think that's a distinct difference between the work that I'm doing um, and considering what led me to this topic as a clinician working in New York City. um, One of the things I found is that I'm one of the few clinicians of color. And I'm primarily working in communities, in low income communities of color. And so, where our teaching staff may be quite diverse, I have not had the experience of seeing the diversity when it comes to clinical staff. And by clinical staff, I'm referring to social workers, psychologists, creative arts therapists. Um, And I really have been curious about that for many, many years. I've been curious about how cultural competency and life experiences impact our choices and decisions and cl- as in clinicians um, and i've really been curious about how much work people do beyond graduation to really learn and be prepared to work with diverse communities and cultures and that's really what motivated me to do this work um, And then in my studies as a PhD student, I'd really be able to chisel away and better understand that this is intercultural work.
0: Hmm. So you're saying there's a distinction between multicultural competency and intercultural communication or education. And um, could you give some quick examples of like, the way that a family does such and such, or you know, like what what are some examples we can relate to?
1: Um, so, for example, let me start by saying, um, or rather, defining intercultural communication. So, intercultural communication, um, or rather, intercultural, describes communities in which there's a deep understanding and respect for all cultures. And intercultural communication to go a step further um, focuses on the mutual exchange of ideas and cultural norms and the development of deep relationships. And then to take that to the next level, intercultural competency is the ability to think and act in an interculturally appropriate way. And so I think a lot of times we mix this up with multiculturalism or cross cultural. And so I will also define multicultural. And multicultural is really a society that contains several cultural or ethnic groups, but each cultural group does not necessarily have engaging interactions with each other. Um, And so it's really interesting because living in New York, people are saying New York is a melting pot, which it is, and it's very multicultural, but then it makes me consider how intercultural are we? Um, And then considering cross-cultural, it is a comparison of different cultures. Um, And so differences are understood and acknowledged and can bring about individual change, but not collective transformation. And so kind of then taking man, looking at intercultural communication, what are we saying here? We're saying intercultural is the ability to bring about change collectively and bring about transformation collectively. It is about um, having a society that contains several cultural and ethnic groups um, and ensuring that they're engaging in interaction and interacting with each other. And so I think a great example of this would be um, you may have a group of friends, um, because we all have friends, right? Um, But how well, do we understand the subcultures of those friends? Um, so the subcultures of intercultural um, factors are like economic, gender, education, work, social, ethnic. So you may have friends who are your work friends, but what do you share and what do you know about them beyond that work environment, right? Mm-hmm. You may have friends who, who um, come together because of the social love for dance, but what do you know about that person beyond their love for dance? Do you know anything about the other subcultures that impact them? Um, So if we're thinking about um, gender, gender is another big subculture, right? So you may, in a community of people because of their gender, but do you know that person beyond those gender factors? Do you know that person or really understand them related to economic factors, related to educational factors, and related to ethnic factors? Um, So we may have families and we find ways to connect with them um, because we're here and we're working with their children and we love their children, but how much do we know about what it is to really live in a low-income community because that is a subculture. That is an economic subculture. That is a social subculture. That is an educational subculture. That is an ethnic subculture. And how much do we know our families beyond our appreciation and love for their children? How much do we understand our families beyond our knowledge of what we read in the psychology textbook about uh, Rogers and Freud and and Kestenberg? And you know, like, how do we go beyond the basics or the foundation? of psychology and movement and really go into the subcultures of what drives a community, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So when I think about the families that we're working with, um, when I've talked about this topic before, one of the things I love to do is show a video of, I mean, um, pictures of, of really stereotypical communities. And the things that I like to ask people are, Um, what are you seeing? Right? So what do you see? What are you thinking? And what are you feeling? And I really want that person to consider that factor just by looking at that picture. And the reason why that's important is because in this time and age, it's a really volatile time that we're living in. So I feel like people are in a situation where they have to pick sides, right? You can't be in the middle. You can't show an appreciation for anything about someone without being for that person. And so the example I love to give is like, oh, Donald Trump's really wearing a really nice suit. What? You like Donald Trump? This is crazy. I just said the man was wearing a nice suit. You know what I mean? So how are we able to kind of look at things on a broader spectrum. And I feel like you can't even say that in a certain room because people would be like, that's not acceptable. That means you like him, that means you're for him, that means you support him. No, it means that I'm open to a conversation. It means that I'm open to seeing someone um, beyond being a dancer, that I'm open to seeing someone beyond their gender, that I'm open to seeing someone beyond their educational or economic scenario or situation or circumstance. Um, And I think if we're able to have these conversations about what we're seeing and what we're thinking and what we're feeling, then the real work can begin to happen related to competency. But the only way for that to happen is for people to feel safe. And this is the struggle is having these conversations in a diverse, safe space. Right.
0: Well, I know you wanted to talk about the therapeutic relationship which mm-hmm. we we do as much as possible for to create that as a safe space. Yes. So, what how do we I heard you say a lot of like how do we? So how do we do that in a therapeutic relationship?
1: So I think the first step is creating that therapeutic relationship for ourselves. So, in order to really be able to support our clients, We need to be able to have these conversations ourselves. We need to be able to be honest about what we're seeing, feeling, and thinking. And we need to be open and honest about receiving feedback about that perception and receiving a better understanding about what it is that we're feeling. Um, So I present this idea of a continuum, right? And Thinking about how we can move forward, I think about the continuum. So we need to consider that intercultural competency is a key capability for working and living effectively with people from different cultures. Um, We need to realize that intercultural competency is essential for transcending ethnocentrism and establishing effective positive relationships across cultural boundaries, um, both internationally and domestically. And most importantly, as healthcare professionals, our job is to recognize that intercultural competency is about making a diverse environment an inclusive environment. So we may have the diversity, but do we have the inclusion? Do families feel supported? Um, so this is this is kind of my philosophy on the continuum. And this is kind of where we stand, and our goal as health professionals is to be in the middle. So if we think about a continuum, we're at the extremes, right? So on one extreme, this is my, my scale, right? We have dominant, non-dominant, and I feel like as health professionals, we're in the middle, right? So our left and our right side. So on the dominant side, we have wealth, we have education, we have opportunity, we have support, and we have resources, And again, this transcends all of these subcultural factors, right? So uh, wealth and education, opportunity and support transcends gender, transcends ethnicity, transcends tons of things, right? And then on this non-dominant side, we have poverty. We have uneducated. We have lack of opportunity. We have no support system and we have lack of resources. And this is where our clients are. They're either on this dominant side or this non-dominant side. And, you know, as a clinician working in New York, um, providing services for OT and dance therapy, I've worked the spectrum of families who have wealth, who have education, who have opportunity, who have support and have resources. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've worked with that family, that non-dominant family, non-dominant family that is living in poverty, is uneducated and lacks opportunity, doesn't have support and doesn't have any resources. Um, And I find that the struggle is real within both of those situations, because you can be in this community where there's a lot of wealth and opportunity. But then if you have a child with special needs. All of a sudden, these non-dominant factors which are lack of opportunity, no support, lack of resource sources, mm. and it's somewhat of social poverty, is a real reality for you. So you can be in this place where it seems abundant and you're still kind of having this non-dominant experience. And so as health professionals, we're the middle person. Our role and job is to create the opportunity, create the continued growth, provide the resources, give the inspiration, and make the connectivity. And we want to bridge those two worlds. And I feel like that is where the work begins. So if you are a clinician that has a different experience than the community that you're working in, you need to do the work to be in the middle, right? So for me personally, I didn't grow up rich. I grew up poor. You know, in a poor, low income community where my parents graduated from high school, where there wasn't really a lot of opportunity, there wasn't really a lot of support and there weren't really a lot of resources. And that still is so much a part of who I am or like what I understand and experiences. So when I started working as a clinician, um, even though I'm this clinician and I have this education and I'm providing services, I found it really hard to work in wealthy communities because I didn't understand a lot of the social factors that needed to exist for me to work in this community. And I felt a lot more comfortable working in communities where there wasn't a lot of resources, um, where people didn't have a lot of opportunity like that just felt great to me. I felt like I understood what I needed to do and where I needed to be. And I found myself really struggling and having a lot of conflict When I was working with these wealthier families that had expectations that I obviously felt like I couldn't meet. And so I had to start doing the work to be like, okay, how can I be successful in this community? How can I be successful serving these families? I know I'm great at what I do. I know I have a skill to offer. But what am I missing here? And what I was missing here is kind of. The ability to appease and reassure the parent, which was really unfamiliar to me because I'm also used to working in communities where I'm telling you what you need to do. And I'm telling you kind of how you need to change things or I'm telling you how you need to be supported. And then I go to this other side and it's a lot more of like people telling me what they expect Mm -hmm. and me having to meet that expectation. And I'm like, this is foreign to me. And it's very frustrating (laughs) yeah. <laughs> and I don't understand why they just don't take my help. <laughs> and so I can imagine that a clinician on the flip side of that is also have another, t- that same experience. It's really frustrating to me. I don't understand why this family's not showing up for services. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why they're not using these resources and getting the help. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so this is the work. The work is like, you know, really assessing ourselves as clinicians and, And I always like to say a good clinician is the person who knows they're not the right guy for the job. (laughs) Like, oh, you know what? I think somebody else should do this job. But when it comes to intercultural competency, which I think is always at play here, the work is how can I look inwards and see where I'm lacking and see what makes me uncomfortable And understand why it makes me uncomfortable. So am I sitting around in a group of diversity and saying, I don't understand certain things that are happening here. You know what I mean? As a clinician, I don't understand um, why I need to kind of make this child uh, feel a certain way to provide therapy or services. Like I'm not a babysitter. I'm a therapist. This is a therapeutic relationship. Okay, but then I need to understand something about that culture and what's happening in that culture, right? And if I'm working in a low income community, I need to understand that, oh, maybe this family's not coming um, to therapy. Well, why aren't they coming to therapy? We gave them a Metro card. Oh, because maybe the lights are off. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are other factors going on. Maybe it's not safe that day. Like, we really have to go beyond. Kind of what we're seeing and the support we think we're giving and saying, if this is not working, what else is going on here? How am I supporting the real needs of the family and how can the family feel comfortable enough to have those conversations with me? Right. So um, really looking at commonality and and difference and, and using that for focus and innovation instead of fragmentation and conformity. And we're always feeling like the client needs to conform or change or shift to what we expect. But how are we changing and shifting to what the needs of our client may be? Like, what are we missing?
0: Right. And it's also, I would imagine this is so important, not just with families or clients coming to therapy, but in the moment, like the moment to moment, things that happen in session and how... How does it trigger us, or what does it bring up in us, and how do we, you know, see that and not necessarily respond and consider the the
1: culture in that? Yes, and so I have a great example. Um, so we were talking about this topic at my job, and um, I work in a preschool with children with special needs, and in some situations we do recommend medication for families, um, and one of the therapists mentioned um that she was meeting with a parent and the parents seemed to really be on board with um possibly deciding to do medication for her child and they went into the meeting with the psychiatrist um and the teacher was there and the teacher is a person of color and the parent is a person of color and as they were walking out the parent turned to the teacher and she's like well you know do you what do you think about this do you think that my child needs to be on medication. And, you know, and and she said to the teacher, because I'm really sick and tired of these white um, therapists trying to medicate my black child. And so it was a really powerful moment for the clinician because she said, like, obviously, she was able to have a conversation with the teacher about this afterwards. But she said it had never occurred to her that the mother was thinking that. And so that's really interesting, you know, and I think like these are the conversations that we have to start being comfortable having because there has to be a moment where we do become comfortable with having that conversation. And there has to be a moment where we do consider that scenario that we do consider um, that I'm a white person and this person may have an opinion or idea about me as a result of that? And am I comfortable having that conversation with them? And it's not to say that's always going to be a factor or that's always going to be an issue for a family, but I think it's important to consider that. And this is definitely something that I think as a clinician, when I walk into uh, a waiting room and I have a family and I'm the only clinician of color and I'm working with this very wealthy non-family of color... There are going to be some impressions about who I am and if I'm not willing to have that conversation or if I'm not willing to consider that they're going to be thinking I might be abrasive. I might not be a good partnership for their child. Um, I may not support the needs of their family. Like I think about that and I think about that because I've been in situations where I know that's a factor. I've been in situations where I know that comes up.
0: Yeah, all of this is pretty new to me in the last three years or so, like just making myself more aware and educated. Um, And something that I do, I don't know if it aligns with, you know, what you practice or what you suggest is just even in the beginning, the very, very beginning of a therapeutic relationship, like Mm -hmm. pointing out the differences um, in a way that's, you know, obviously helpful. So um, if it's age, you know, you know, what do you notice about us that's different? Um, what do you notice about us that that isn't the same between us? And how do you think, where do you think we might agree? Where do you think we might disagree on different, you know, different values or different approaches or different ideas and, and so
1: forth? Absolutely. And I think that's a huge um, deal. And so the thing you know, that is totally aligned with my philosophy, which is that I think the thing that we need to consider as we enter that therapeutic relationship and ongoing throughout the relationship, because it may not seem like an issue initially, and then something happens and you're like, oh, maybe this is an issue, is are our interventions in service to the client when we consider the subcultural implications? And I feel like if we always kind of revisit that question You know, it's like the idea of, like, if we're sharing personal information with a client, what do we say? Is this is sharing this information with this client in service to the client? Is it therapeutic and a benefit to the client and the needs that they have in this relationship? And so I think we need to continue to do that. But we also need to layer the cultural factors and I think sometimes it's uncomfortable to do that. It challenges us to go to an uncomfortable place as people outside of our roles as therapists. Um, but it's important to recognize that, you know what I mean? And it's important to consider that in the therapeutic relationship, um, especially to bridge the relationship. And so it's not that you walk in and you have to always say that. And and we did have this conversation once like, with a group of saying, like, is that helpful? Is it helpful to kind of say, like, I'm a woman and, and you're a male. I'm, right. I'm black and you're white. I'm old and you're young. Like, do you have to do that if it's not presented as an issue? And it's like, you don't have to. I think as clinicians, we have to do what works for us. But if you find that it's something that's coming up a lot for you, if you find that it's of service to you to address that off the bat and kind of get that out of the way, if you find that that is something that you're not so aware of, so you do have to be more transparent about initiating that in the early stages of the relationship, then I think it's important to know that about yourself.
0: Yeah, I think I've, I've had an uncomfortable experience in the past of something like this. Mm -hmm. um with both age and color and I found that like six months or so into the relationship all this stuff was coming up and it it seemed related and I never addressed it in the beginning so it was like how do we just how do we just address it now I mean like we're so deep into this and we've never Mm -hmm. once talked about it obviously that was my fault um I mean, from your perspective, it's like both both people or everyone involved, like, it would be great if we all made this an open conversation. But I, I saw that as, like, something that I, I should have done. And so then when we're already in the thick of the, you know, the issues that were going on in the relationship, it's like, now you're bringing this up? I mean no one said that, but it's, that's what it felt like. No, that's not what it is. Don't just blame it on, on my age, on my race. Like Mm -hmm. this, this is you and you're disappointing me. Like this is client talking to me.
1: So Mm -hmm.
0: yeah, I guess like for me, it feels right to like address it in the beginning. And of course, as it comes up as well. So it's not just like,
1: Oh, now this is an out kind of thing. Exactly. And, and I mean, I think this is the same thing like working. Um, I can recall being an intern working in an inpatient psych unit and the client was a young client and and he was kind of like really had this more like, we're friends, like I'm young, you're young, you're not going to share anything that I say. And, and I had to do the work, especially being a student to be like, Actually, I'm here in the role as clinician. I'm here in the role as a professional. And so anything that you share with me, I will be sharing and bringing back to my supervisor, bringing back to the team. And so I think even in those moments where we're seeing a similarity, we have to be clear that there may still be a difference. You know, um, So if it's related to age, there may still be a difference. I'm working with families of color. I'm a person of color. Do I think that that in some ways... This enhances um, the relationship that I have with certain families? Absolutely, I do. But do I also need to recognize that there are still differences between me and those families? Yes, there are. You know what I mean? And do I have to also work hard to just not be like, oh, we're the same, like you're telling me a story and I can relate to that and we come from the same neighborhood and you live around the corner and, you know, and I think it's great. I think we do need to work um, from this place of commonality and it's a great place to start. Um, it's a great place to kind of break the ice and and bridge the relationship for those more difficult conversations and build the rapport for those more difficult conversations. Um, but we also need to be aware of it and not just say, let's just look for all the things that we have in common. You know, it's okay to acknowledge the differences. It's okay to... Um, kind of say, I have a different culture and it's just as valuable and just as powerful as yours. Um, And again, when I presented on this topic, one of the things that came up is um, one of the people in the group said, oh, I work in an organization and we do a lot of work on uh, cultural awareness and cultural competency. But as a, a white person, I struggle with feeling like I can acknowledge all the great things or benefits about being a white person. Because somehow in these conversations, there's a need to minimize the benefit. And so I need to just enhance or amplify um, what's going on in the other cultural um, scenario or in the cultural situation. I think that's another big thing about intercultural competency is the ability to um, recognize the value of, Another's culture while also recognizing the value of your own culture, you know, and a person who is fully interculturally competent, who's at the high end of, of um, the spectrum. So when you're considering um, some of the assessments in intercultural competency, they're looking at people who have more of a monocultural um, demeanor or level versus someone who has an intercultural level. And so adaptation, when you're considering um, the IDI, which is the intercultural development inventory, adaptation is the highest level of intercultural competency. And it really is someone who is able to recognize the richness and power of their own culture while recognizing the richness and power of another culture. You know, and, and so I think that's, what we're always working towards and that's what we're always kind of considering as we're doing this work not that I need to minimize what I bring to the table but how can I acknowledge what I bring to the table while also recognizing what you bring to the table
0: yeah that's such a great point I didn't even think about it that way but like You know, when you were saying that, I was like, yeah, I do that. (laughs) I didn't even think about that, those two layers, you know, well, there's probably more than two, but just that, you know, that both of those things integrated and that sounds great.
1: Yeah. So kind of just, um, considering kind of going back to your point too, like, where do we begin as we, um, you know, step away from ourselves and take it more to the client, Um, therapist relationship is acknowledgement of all cultural groups, so prepping for the complicated dialogue, like you said, um, was consideration to cultural frameworks, using um, friendly topics and efforts to kind of, you know, bridge the gap, kind of looking at those similarities to bridge the gap It opens the door um, more readily for things that may not be similar. Um, activities and interventions that emphasize common humanity or common organizational goals, Um, and then efforts to increase cultural self-awareness. Again, I can't stress enough uh, the idea that I have a culture that matters and others have a substantially different culture that matters also.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, Mm -hmm. We got to wrap up soon, but I'm wondering if you have like, three starting steps like something like three very simple starting steps of like getting you know working towards this
1: Mm -hmm. um i would say again really trying to find the communities that support safety and diversity i think we work to create that in our sessions and in our um, practices, but how often are we looking to find that and create that for ourselves as clinicians? Um, and I really think that's such a huge starting point, because if you're only sitting in a room with people who have the same perspective as you, there's no growth there. Um, and so I think it's really important to try to find those communities that exist. Um, I think it's also really important to be honest with yourself and start doing the work with yourself. Um, Because then you start learning and developing the ability to have those conversations beyond yourself. So how do I you know, like if you're if you're confronted with an uncomfortable situation, as you mentioned, with a client, how are you doing the work behind the scenes outside of that session to confront and further understand what happened in that session? Right. So if if working with a particular client triggers something for you, what work are you doing outside of that session to further understand that? Mm -hmm. Is it just an isolation to that client or is there something happening on a subcultural level that you need to process further? Um, And then I think I would say continuing to do the work and kind of recognizing that we never stop learning And so, how are you working beyond those isolated client experiences to really broaden your understanding and comfort with the other, whatever that other may be? How are you really working um, to be in that middle place as a health professional and be in that middle place as a person? How are you doing the work to manifest opportunities, um, sustain growth, create resources? Um, manifest and support inspiration, and bridge the gap of connectivity between the dominant and non-dominant factors.
0: Yeah, yeah. that sounds really but great. it's not, it's not it's easy a lot work. work. Not yeah. light work. Yeah,
1: it's, it's, you know, I think you have to invest um, in this work and invest in the process and really commit to doing the work um, okay. because it's lifelong learning, really.
0: Yeah, and it's like you almost opening up a jar after, kind of like I just I was saying before, I mean I've haven't really consciously worked on this stuff, you know, for a lot of my life, and I grew up in a Jewish family, and obviously I'm white, and um, you know there were different ideas thrown around, um, about you know, befriending other Jewish people and and all of that, and it was kind of like that was what happened in my family was like, well, where are your Jewish friends? It was like, stick to the same culture, stick to the same culture, the other, the other, the other, the other kind of thing. So, um, you know, that always, I was always aware that that bothered me a lot because I, you know, I was friendly and I, I really liked everybody and I was curious about other people, but you know, there's so many other layers to that. So, um, and I know I'm not alone. Like I know there's a lot of other people who are just beginning to look into this. And it's definitely, yeah, it's hard. It's lifelong work.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, any work that we do on ourselves is hard. True. Peel back the onion and peel back the layer, you know? And so I think you really have to invest and commit to wanting, I hate to sound like um, cliche, but being the change that you want to see. You know, you really have to work at, at changing those things about yourself and it doesn't happen overnight. But I think if you make a commitment and you set goals for yourself, it is possible.
0: Definitely. And I like, thank you so much for sharing all this so much in such a short time. Actually it was super helpful and I know it's going to be really, really beneficial and valuable for everyone else listening. Um, I know we don't talk about this enough in general and I definitely don't bring it up enough on the podcast. So
1: thank you, Renee. Well, thank you for having me and yeah. allowing me a platform.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I guess we'll we'll put up your information on the you know on the website and everything on mindyourbodydmt.com. But let us know if there's any other way you want us to reach you or um, if anyone has any questions. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so Come on. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Okay.
0: Bye. Bye.